Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. Do you have a clear conscience? I mean, what is your conscience really like? How do you know if you are a relatively good person or a relatively bad person? And how do you really feel about yourself concerning your current situation in the life that you have? Do you really believe that you're a good person or do you believe that you're an evil person? And on what basis would you believe that? To ask the question of do you have a clear conscience would depend on what may be on your conscience. There may be something that you have done or there may be something that you have not done that is just eating at you for some reason. Or you may not remember those things that you have done or you may not think of them as being very serious anymore compared to what they were like before. But regardless of that, whenever we talk about or think about our conscience, whenever we think about that, if we are going to evaluate ourselves and say that we have a clear conscience or we don't have a clear conscience, then the only way to define that is to define that on the basis of some set of principles, some sense of what is right and wrong. We need some laws in our life in some way. We need to have some definitive understanding of how we should behave or how we should not behave. And with that determination, if we can define the proper behavior or attitudes that we should have, then we can decide if we have a clear conscience or not. And in general, people have their own personal ideas concerning how they should be living, their own personal understandings of what is right and wrong. And when comparing themselves with other people, they can easily have a perspective of how good their conscience should be or how bad their conscience should be. And that has to do with comparing themselves with other people in terms of how other people are doing with what you believe is right and wrong. Because you may be able to evaluate yourself, but that really doesn't mean a whole lot unless you have somebody else to compare yourself with. I mean, you can determine on your own that your conscience should not be clear, but that's making a determination just according to your own personal standards. But without somebody else also being held up to those same standards, then you may have a clear conscience or you may not have a clear conscience, but either way, if you're just doing it by yourself, you can always change your standards by yourself and nobody would know. And if that's the case, then you would be able to succeed in adjusting things in such a way that you could have a clear conscience if you really want to. But when other people are involved, if you compare yourself with others, then you could feel either very much ashamed because you know others who do meet the standard that you think is appropriate to live by, or you can feel very proud because you have accomplished something that somebody else has not. And so in that context, you could have a clear conscience because you could always refer to somebody else to say that they are not meeting the standard that you think that others should live by. But that's the issue, is that we start defining things on our own basis. And so when I ask the question, do you have a clear conscience, you can say, well, according to who? According to what? 
I mean, if I don't think that I've ever done anything wrong or evil, if I don't think I've ever hurt anybody, then of course I have a clear conscience. I have no reason to be ashamed for anything whatsoever. But as soon as you incorporate some laws or some rules or some principles for daily living, as soon as you add some of those into your life, then you have reason not to have such a clear conscience, especially when you relate to other people and you encounter other people. You will always have this sense of shame overbearing you if you have not fulfilled what you believe you should have fulfilled. And of course, our God made his contribution to this great effort of trying to live according to what is good and evil. He made his contribution through giving the law of Moses. And through that, now you have a new opportunity to either have a clear conscience or not. Because if there is a God, if there truly is a God, and he has defined what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, if he has defined what your behavior should be or shouldn't be, well, then your conscience will then be defined by God and not by yourself. He will be the one who will define whether or not you can have a clear conscience. And so you can look at the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, which was the expressed manifestation of what God believes is good and evil. And you can look at that and you can compare yourself with the law. And through doing that, you can determine whether or not you should have a clear conscience. And if you have violated the law, either by what you have done or by what you have not done, then you shouldn't have a clear conscience. You certainly should not have a clear conscience. But when the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote in chapter 9, he spoke about this subject of having a clear conscience. He spoke about this in the context of the temple, of the tabernacle. That the temple and the tabernacle was given by God. He instructed the children of Israel to build it. And the function, the operation of it, its very structure and existence, defined a situation where the children of Israel could never have a clear conscience. For example, in Hebrews chapter 9, he describes the two veils. He describes the outer veil, the inner veil, which has to do with the outer court and the inner court. There was the area in the tabernacle where the bread was placed, And then there was another area in the tabernacle which was referred to as the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was placed. And no one had access to the Holy of Holies. In Hebrews chapter 9 verse 1 it is written, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the Holy Place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. In other words, the sins that the people did not know that they had committed. That was what the blood was for that was given by the high priest into the most holy place, and it was placed on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat. But then in verse 8, this is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 8, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not 
yet been disclosed, while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. That's the point, is that the very structure of the tabernacle that was given by God according to the law was constructed in such a way that the people were continually reminded that they had no business having a clear conscience, that there was no way to have a clear conscience. And in this case, I'd like to say that having a clear conscience, again, refers to whether or not you live according to the proper standard by which you should live. And if you do not, then your conscience will remind you that you will be remembering the violations that you have personally performed. And as a result, you are guilty. You are ashamed. Your conscience is not clear. And the tabernacle was a continual reminder of this very fact. When the temple was constructed, it was constructed in a very similar way. And it was a continual reminder that the people could never ever have a clear conscience. It was not possible to make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Now again, when it comes to a person's conscience, we're talking about something in the inward part of an individual. I mean, it really has nothing to do with their flesh, and it has nothing to do with how they truly relate to other people. This has to do with what's going on in your own mind, in your own heart, in your own being, This is something that is going to be reserved only between you and your God. Nobody else is going to be involved in this, whether or not you have a clear conscience. The people in Israel related to each other. They had a lot of activity together. Many were involved in the temple services. People participated in the festivals. They often spent a lot of time with each other. And yet, in doing so, they did not have to reveal the fact that they did not have a clear conscience. They did not have to reveal that. They could simply get along with life and just talk to people, relate to people, do business with people, have fun with people. They could do that without dealing with the real core issues. This is something that is unique between an individual and their God only. And the tabernacle itself was a continual reminder of this fact to all the people. And this is one of the reasons why the Hebrews needed to separate themselves from the temple. Because the temple was a continual reminder. Everything that was taking place within the temple was a continual reminder of the fact that they were still guilty, that they needed to be ashamed because they were not right with God, that they did not have access to their God, that they had no business esteeming or pursuing any relationship with their God because he was separate, because he was not accessible He was in the Holy of Holies, and the closest that anyone could get, with the exception of the event once a year, was only within the most holy place just outside of the Holy of Holies, the holy place. That was the only place that they could go, and even then, only the priesthood, only the priests could have access to that. The people had no access to that. The temple was a continual reminder of the separation that you had between you and your God, which was a continual reminder of the fact that you are guilty and you need to be ashamed. You should always be that way. You will always be that way. You will always live that way. And there is nothing that you will ever be able to do about it. And if you dare to make such an attempt as to walk into the Holy of Holies where only 
the high priest could enter in once a year, assuming that he does everything correct. If you think that you're going to walk before the presence of God, he's going to strike you dead. Now, how does that make you feel? How would that make you feel if you were a Hebrew who did not know that he loved you? It would remind you that he doesn't. It would be a continual reminder that he is ashamed of you, that he is disgusted with you, that he is embarrassed, perhaps, to call you one of his people. That was the life of a Hebrew. And the writer of this letter, especially in chapter 8 and here in chapter 9, definitely makes the point that the Hebrews must separate themselves from that entirely, must completely remove themselves from the entire structure, the entire Levitical structure, the entire Mosaic structure. They must remove themselves from that and enter into the new covenant that has now been established. Otherwise, there would be no way that they could draw near to God There would be no way that they could know their God, and there certainly would be no opportunity for them to be loved by their God because they would never have a clear conscience. Continuing in verse 9, this is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9, it says, "...which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings." Regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. And of course, that time of reformation has come. And that time was defined by the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus himself. But that these other things, they only related to the issues concerning the flesh. And that's what the law was about. The law was a definition of how your flesh should behave. What you should eat what you should drink, what you shouldn't eat or drink. Various washings, or what we would say in a modern context, various baptisms, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation and that we have right now. The regulations for the body. What does this have to do with? This has to do with what your body is doing, how you are behaving, how you are engaging the world that you're a part of. It has to do with your actions, whether you commit sin or not. That's what he's referring to, that these things were only based on what your flesh was going to do. The law was not given for the purpose of dealing with the issues of an individual's heart, at least not beyond condemning a person for the things that they are thinking in their heart. There was nothing there that would make anyone perfect. There was nothing there, there's nothing available within the law that you can look to for guidance and instruction so that you can know how to live and then actually live that way and then eventually you could have a clear conscience. It was not possible, that's not what it was given for. That's the point. These things only have to do with the expression of your flesh. But then in verse 11, this is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now understand something. When the Lord Jesus came, and he died for our sins and rose from the dead, He was then recognized as our high priest. And he did not go into the temple there in Jerusalem. He did not go into the temple 
for the purpose of presenting his blood there in the holy place, in the most holy of holies. He did not go there into the temple in order to present himself as the high priest, the substitute for the Levitical priesthood and the high priest defined by it. He was not there. He went into the true tabernacle, the true tabernacle of God that he erected, that was not erected by man, it was erected by our God. And that's where he went. And if that's where he went, then what business do the Hebrews have in going to the temple there in Jerusalem anymore? They have no business being there. They are separated from that now. That has no place in their life at all anymore. It's over. And all of the laws associated with it are over. All of the concerns of the behavior of individuals is over. All of that is finished. There is a true tabernacle, and that is in heaven. And the living God has manifested in the flesh, and he personally returned, identified as the Lord Jesus, who is our high priest, and he resolved the sin issue once and for all. He entered the holy place once for all. That means that he entered in one time for the purpose of providing redemption, and he's not going to go and do it again. That tells us that the sin issue between us and our God is over. It is completely over. It was over a long time ago. It was over. And so if our God does not hold our sins against us anymore, then what business do we have holding our own sins against us anymore? Or what business does anybody else, for that matter, have in holding our sins against us anymore? The sin issue is over. And certainly not just for those who are saved, but for those who are lost. Not just for those who are going to heaven, but also for those who are going to hell. No one is going to go to hell because of their sin. They're going to go to hell for a different reason, which I'll explain in just a minute. But in the context of sin, it's over. He did it once and for all. He entered the holy place once for all, and he obtained eternal redemption. Now, in obtaining eternal redemption, that means that this redemption that he has obtained is eternal. And so if he grants to you, if he gives you eternal life, then you have eternal life. Then you have this eternal redemption. And if it is eternal, then that means you will never lose it. You can never lose it. Because if you do, if a time ever comes when you don't have it, then that means it's not eternal. That means it was temporal. And I hope you enjoyed it while you had it. Because that was it. It was just temporary. No, this is an eternal redemption. Continuing in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13, it is written, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And who was called? Everyone has been called. Only those who will respond to the call are those who will receive the free gift that is being offered. That's the call. The call is, will you receive the free gift of eternal life? And the response is either yes 
or no. And those who receive the free gift of eternal life will receive the promise of the eternal inheritance that has now been given to everyone who has been resurrected from the dead by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, who have been made alive and who have been made into a new creation, now to be identified as a child of the living God. And as his child, you will receive an inheritance. Now again, in verse 14, he says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience... How much more will that cleanse your conscience? Well, if you know that it was given once and for all, and that the sin issue between you and your God is over, then according to what He has declared, according to what He has done, according to what He has given to you, according to that, according to the forgiveness that He has now given, you have no business, you have no reason to be concerned anymore about your sins. Because there is no other way to deal with sins. You are either going to be forgiven or you're not. And if you're not going to be forgiven, you have every reason not to have a clear conscience. But see, that's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in the sense of what's going on in your own mind or what can go on in your mind. According to the Old Covenant, you would have a continual reminder of the fact that you cannot have a clear conscience because you are continually reminded of not only the sins that you know that you committed, that the Levitical priesthood will manage for you, but you will also be reminded once a year of all the sins that you did not know that you committed because of the action of the high priest going into the Holy of Holies with the blood that was given for you who committed sins in ignorance. Either way, through the Levitical priesthood for the sins that you know that you committed or through the high priest for the sins that you did not know that you committed, you would be continually reminded of a reason why you should not have a clear conscience. But when the Lord Jesus entered into the true tabernacle of God and not this copy that people were worshiping there in Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus entered into the true tabernacle once for all. It is now time to have a clear conscience. It is now time to be separated from the Old Covenant. The Hebrews needed to be told that it was over, that the Old Covenant was over. The Hebrews needed to know that. They needed to be told that. They needed to understand that. That's why the writer wrote this, is so that they could be told that they need to separate themselves from the tabernacle, from the temple. They need to believe and trust in what Jesus has done for them, that regardless of their behavior, regardless of what they have done in their flesh, it's over. It's no longer an issue. This was necessary. This was totally required. Otherwise, there would be no way that you can draw near to God. And if you cannot draw near to God... You cannot be loved by your God. And if you are not loved by your God, you have to engage in more sin in your life in order to try to find some temporary reprieve through the belief in the deception that you're going to be loved if you commit more sin. That's your only alternative. This is so important to realize. The Lord Jesus has made this possible so that we can be drawn near to him. But to do what? In verse 14, this is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, he says he's going to cleanse your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. Now, what do you mean by serve the living God? I mean, the Levitical priesthood seemed to be quite active in serving God. Well, they were. They were serving God by continually condemning people and reminding them that they should not have a clear conscience, which is simply to say that the Levitical priesthood was responsible to ensure that no one could be drawn near to 
their God. They prevented people from entering in to the Holy of Holies. They reminded people that their sins were still held against them and that there was no way to resolve that. They were acting in service of God. This was necessary so that eventually a person can recognize that they have no hope outside of the mercy of God and that they need the mercy of the living God. But what he says here is that your conscience can be cleansed from dead works. Now, what are these works that are dead? What does it mean to say dead works? Well, it certainly is not sin. I mean, the writer could have just simply said sin. He didn't have a problem saying that. He said works that there is a difference between dead works and living works. What are dead works? How would we define dead works? I believe he defined dead works just fine. If you go back up to verse 10, he gives us a very good definition concerning dead works. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10, it says, "...since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, these are dead works. They have to do with works that are dead, that have no meaning to God. They have to do with behavior. They have to do with the acts of the flesh. They have to do with the behavior of your flesh and have virtually nothing to do with the condition of your heart, the condition of your spirit, the condition of your inner being. It has to do with what you're eating and whether or not you're engaged to the proper baptism. Look, my friend, let me tell you something. Any unbeliever, any dead person, and when I refer to a dead person, I refer to somebody who has not been resurrected through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Anybody who is not a believer in the living God, anybody who doesn't even believe that God exists, can follow the commands of Moses. They certainly will not be able to live in obedience to them, but they can at least pursue them just as well as anybody else who believes that there is a God, and just as well as anybody else who has a sincere interest in wanting to become a better person. Just look at the differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. That's a classic example of a group of people, the Sadducees, who did not really believe in a God, but followed the law of Moses because they believed that it was a wonderful way of life, versus the Pharisees, who at least believed that there was a God, and they lived in obedience to the commandments as best they could with that kind of an understanding. That's why I believe the writer refers to these works as dead works, because any dead person can do them. But none of these serve the living God. They may serve you. They may serve your neighbor. If you want to serve your God, it has to be done completely outside of the Old Covenant, the Temple, and the Priesthood. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net